Welcome to Motos and Friends, Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, brought to you by the spectacular Yamaha R7, a new generation of super sport machine. My name is Arthur Coldwells. TJ Adams is not very experienced when it comes to riding off-road, so she was the perfect candidate to go out and try the new entry-level Honda XR150L. And indeed, she rode it both on the street and in the dirt as well. I was curious as to what she would think, as on the face of it, this incredibly inexpensive machine is very attractive. But let's be honest here, is it a real motorcycle? Or is it just too underpowered and lightweight to be of any use in the real world? Our snippet this week comes to you from Alpine Stars. The iconic Italian apparel manufacturer has an impressively large range of product, and as great as that is, it also may make it difficult to pick out exactly what you might want. Recently, I wore some A-Stars street bike gear that impressed me, and TJ sampled some of the Alpine Stars off-road range of items that she liked. In our second segment, TJ Adams chats with Summer Hooker. He's an expert in the world of vintage motorcycles and the chief judge at the Quail Motorcycle Gathering, as well as many others, including the Salon Privé at Blenheim Palace in the UK. He is the author of many articles which have been published in classic motorcycle magazines, and he has worked in residential therapeutic programs for children and youth, as well as helped establish the first residential program for autistic children in Tennessee. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of riders meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque and it provides you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Imagine a picturesque Santa Inez Valley in California. <laughs> it's a sunny day and uh, picture an adventurous soul, myself. <laughs> yeah, we had a full day riding and when I first saw the little XR150L, I couldn't help but admire the agile design. It's a little bit retro looking. It doesn't look too tall. It looked taller than I thought, but it didn't look too tall. So I wasn't intimidated by it. I was, I was very excited to get on and ride. Okay. It does look like a full-size motorcycle though, doesn't it? I, I was quite surprised. You rode the Kawasaki 230s um, recently and, you know, loved those. 
and especially the sort of low seat, seat height one. So I thought, well, you know, 230, 150, this is going to be a physically smaller motorcycle. But actually, it really didn't look like it to me. It has full-size wheels, and it looked like a, a normal sort of size motorcycle. Yes, the looks are deceiving. I would agree with that. It definitely looks like a full-size motorcycle. It doesn't look as though you're you're going to be doing half a job or, or riding a, a a tiny, unimportant motorcycle. It really looks the part. Okay, so you got to actually sort of throw your leg over the thing. What was your initial impression when you first first got on it? Um, I was excited because it was straight away. It was comfortable. Um, the seat isn't too narrow. Sometimes when you get on a, a motorcycle like that, you kind of have that bony feeling, but it was a comfortable seat, not too wide either. If it's too wide, that means that my uh, reach to the ground can be restricted. And the suspension went down a little bit, making, I was actually able to flat foot. I've got a 29 inch inseam. So I was pleased about that. Um, and then I fiddled about with the controls. Everything seemed to be at hand and easy to get to and the handlebars are in a good place for me. So um, I was actually, you know, straight away feeling confident about going out for the ride. That's, that's important. So it felt um, accessible to you. It, it was, the, were the controls light and easy to operate? Yes, the controls were easy, very easy to get into gear. And I pulled away feeling comfortable straight away Often you have to sort of get used to a bike if you feel the weight of it and tipping sure. around. But, you know, we pulled straight out onto the main roads and I felt comfortable. Um, we were, uh, there were a group of about 11 of us all together. So um, normally there's a bit of jostling around, but um, it was nimble and easy to get into position and, and just feel comfortable. Right. The Honda is, again, like, like some of these other um, sort of entry level uh, dual sport bikes is carbureted. I don't know how much that that means to you, but it is not fuel injected. It is carbureted. That means it has an old fashioned choke lever and so on. Now it comes with electric start, doesn't it? It does. Yes, it has yeah. got an electric start, and, and it also has a Kickstarter as well, which yes. is good. Um, I think uh, this is actually a global motorcycle. In a lot of other markets, it does not have the Kickstarter. I believe. But the point I'm trying to say is that it was a relatively chilly morning and my impression was, was that the Honda was a little cold-blooded, that it took a little bit to get it started when it was cold. Yes, yeah, you're right. Um, it didn't want to play straight away, but it didn't take long to get right. it going. But you could spin it over with the electric starter and once it ran and you just let it idle for a few, you know, a minute or two and it just warmed yes. it up and everything was good. Yes, I didn't actually let it idle for too long, which uh, because, you know, I was under, not under pressure, but everything was happening in other people's time, not my time. So I didn't let it sit at all. Um, I just pulled away and it was, it was great. Once it was running, it was great. Okay. And yeah, it has that sort of that retro a thing happening with the carburetors but it also has a drum brake at the back it has got a few things that um are a bit sort of old-fashioned i suppose but i think that's part of the charm and you're right it's been available in other parts of the world but it's new to the states and has only been up for sale since april this year right okay so you your first part of the ride was on the street which is probably where it's going to spend most of its time with most owners it's nice that it's a dual sport, but it was on the street. 
What was your impression of the power when you first pulled away? Because you pulled onto a fairly busy road. Was first gear, could you even use it? Or was it so quick out of first gear that you had to... No, it was good. First gear was fine um, to pull away and go a little way and then up into second. I didn't feel I had to sort of nip it up really quickly. Um, and plenty of pull. I didn't feel that I was having to make a great effort to keep up or get, get into the flow of the traffic. Um, yeah, I didn't have any issues there at all. And it felt stable. It felt nice on the road. I was expecting when I looked at it and the style of bike that it would be have that sort of skinny feel, but it was actually just fine. Okay. I mean, it's only a 150cc single-cylinder motor. Did you, you didn't feel like anything was lacking? I mean, it didn't sort of pull out and feel like, oh my God, this thing's got no power at all. Or did it feel like it had some, had a little bit of zip if you felt like it? I felt it had zip. Um, really? Okay. Yeah. It didn't, I mean, it doesn't feel like a mean machine, but it felt plenty to do the job. Yeah, the only thing that I did notice, which, you know, you do when you're on a new bike straight away and you're trying to get used to the controls, is that I didn't find it easy to cover the brakes. And uh, when we stopped, I checked, but the the brake lever is not adjustable. I'm sure you can get an aftermarket brake lever that, that will be. But, you know, on riding, that was the first thing I noticed and the only thing actually throughout the whole day that I thought was something I could have done with, you know, having fixed up a little bit. Um, because I like to keep my couple of fingers covering the brake. But it certainly moved through the traffic just fine. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed it because it's, it's... It didn't feel underpowered, I suppose, is what I'm saying. I mean, it's, you've really? got to expect what... You've, you've got to expect it to behave like a small bike, because it is. But it, it sure. didn't feel as though it was stressing and straining. Really? OK, that's great. It only has a five-speed gearbox only, but there's no reason why it should have a have a sixth one. So once you've actually got to sort of ride it on any sort of highway, I know you probably didn't take it on a freeway, but... We did, yes, we did. Oh, you did? Yes. And so in terms of riding along in top gear, what did it feel like? It was okay. Um, obviously, you can't go as fast as you can on a bigger bike, but it, it got going easily up to... 50 miles an hour without 50 miles per hour without thinking about it and then you kind of be giving it a bit of a pull to to get it to go further actually the the fastest I went was 65 and it was comfortable it wasn't screaming along it was actually just fine I mean I wouldn't say it's designed for motorway for freeway riding but yeah it was absolutely fine if you have got a section of freeway riding during your commute then you'll be fine really that's quite impressive I've got to, got to say, this is not what I would have expected. I mean, I, I was expecting sort of t small motor, very low powered, that's sort of straining a bit as soon as you got on, the, on any sort of open road. But it really sounds like it wasn't like that. It really sounded like it coped well. Yes, I, I felt the same. I thought it was going to be a lot of effort, a lot of sort of ringing it to, to get it revving up to get going. But it was, it was fine. I mean, I'm not the heftiest person around. So I'm about 140 pounds to give people an idea. Um, oh, there were people of different sizes there actually thinking about it. There were some larger people riding and nobody made any comment about having to really, you know, lay on the power to get it going. It was, it was just fine. It's a really happy little machine. We went through the streets of a little town, uh, well, the little town of Santa Inez, as I mentioned, the picturesque little town of Santa Inez, which is a beautiful place. Right, um, right, right. Coped with a bit of traffic. Um, for those that don't know, we were on a a day's media ride so there were other people from different media outlets there so um 
that's why there were quite a few of us all together. And then um, we did some photographs and, and effortlessly moved across to a sort of dirt road, not completely dirt, actually sort of gravel and, and dry stuff, definitely off, off the paved roads. Oh, and nice. that was just fine. Yeah, I didn't feel anything untoward happening. Um, followed along, I was sort of somewhere up the front. Um, I felt safe because I had all the right gear on, which is something I recommend to everybody. It just <laughs> makes you feel easier about whatever you're riding. Um, so we we went on these little winding roads and um, then it opened up into sort of lush, picturesque countryside vineyards, just fantastic. And I didn't really have to think about the bike, which is the key thing. You can just ride and enjoy and look around and see the scenery. Um, went up through the gears easily. Um, yeah, I just um, can't think of anything ill to say of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, the tyres coped well with changes from asphalt onto rough stuff. Didn't really have any dodgy moments at that point, I have to add, here. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the tyres are sort of... The tyres are able to cope with, with both. They're dual sport, dual sport tyres, so... Um, I didn't feel any untoward happening. And then we um, headed off to a, a ranch that um, Honda had hired for the day and they'd set up courses there so we could drive different levels of actual roughy tufty off-road stuff. And uh, for those that have been following me and those that know I'm not really a dirt bike rider, I would like to right. be more proficient at it. <laughs> so I chose the... Um, the the lowest level of <laughs> dirt bike riding course that they'd set up, and off we went. So people went in all their se- in separate directions, riding uh, different courses, and we had arranged to stop for photographs on the way. I took the designated route and fell off pretty much straight away. <laughs> <It's>, uh-huh. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Look back and laugh. Into it was the earth became very sandy. Basically, it was like a fine silt and. I didn't get across it easily enough. I sort of let my tyre go into it and it slipped away from under me. <laughs> so I picked up and off I went again. And I have to say the bike wasn't too hefty to pick up. You know, I thought that I would struggle with that because I'm a little bit of a weakling, <laughs> but it was fine. <laughs> got going again, got a bit hot and bothered, sorted myself out and managed to traverse the route and second time around I then did pretty much the same even though I knew it was coming the sandy bit um that time I was feeling a bit too, too uh, exhausted I think to pick the bike up and and one of the uh, the guys came past anyway and helped me to pick the bike up but nothing was damaged on it I mean it was just a, a low speed off and I still felt you know felt it was fun it was it was good awesome so so things like the clutch was light. I mean, did you have any problem with the clutch? I mean, was there anything about this bike that you felt hard or onerous or difficult to use? No, I didn't. Um, it was easy to use. Typical Honda layout. Everything was where you, you thought it should be. It had clear clocks. Um, I didn't really refer to it uh, except to check the speed so that I knew how fast I'd gone on the freeway. <laughs> and I just... i say the only thing I'd like to have had a bit a bit of a closer handle on the the brake lever. But that's a personal thing. Everybody's got different size. Yeah, and you can get aftermarket, you know, levers. So somebody with smaller hands or, you know, ladies like yourself or maybe younger people. And if you have a bit of a stretch, there's always aftermarket levers. Yeah, I did think that because it is um, an entry-level bike. So you will get some younger people riding, hopefully. And this would be a great bike if you're 
commuting to college and you then wanted to have a bit of fun off riding off road a bit I think it's ideal I mean it, it certainly felt good enough to do the job and the one that I rode had um, all of the extras you are able to buy a tank bag which the accessories on. right yeah the accessories um, you're able to buy ca- uh, panniers yeah those little soft panniers those look cool they were great yeah yeah Although the bike does come with a back rack on it already, so it already has a rack that if you can sort of just sort of bungee things too, if you've got a couple of packages. Yes, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, it's it's definitely been thought out. Yeah, I guess it's been around for a long time, so it's a really evolved motorcycle. They've really got it right now. They've got a chance to get the gearing right, the feel of it right. And what what was like? What was the suspension like? Was it soft enough on? on the dirt and was it firm enough on the street yes it did feel good i must admit um i was pleased when i sat on as i say that the height went down a little bit so it was soft enough to do that right. but um it was nice and comfortable on the street and on the on the rough stuff i didn't sort of bottom out or do anything that made me feel it was harsh yeah it was great okay as you say they've obviously thought it all through um there's no abs but you don't want that when you're off-road so that's I didn't see that as a problem. Right. So I guess the good news about this bike is it is literally less than three thousand dollars. MSRP on it is actually two thousand nine hundred and seventy one dollars. Oh, I was just amazed. Well, this that... is like the most affordable bike out there. I think it's cheaper than a Grom actually. <laughs> about the only bike that's cheaper than this in the Honda lineup is the Navi, but. This is a completely different ball game to this. This is a real motorcycle, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's it. It looks like a, a full-size, socially acceptable motorcycle. You don't look as though you're, you're riding a mini bike or anything. So for that price, that is absolutely astounding. And, you know, you can go two up. It's got rear seat and foot pegs. So at that price, it's a bargain. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Okay, so overall, it sounds like you really liked it. I did, yes. I was pleasantly surprised. I felt it had a lowish feel for the look of it so i was expecting it to have sort of a top heavy feel but it, it it's really nicely balanced i thoroughly enjoyed it okay what was the comfort like over all day because you put in quite some miles i mean you were gone all day yes you did a lot of riding so did you end up with sort of any aches and pains at the end of the day no i didn't um they've even rubberized the foot pegs so you don't feel vibration when you're sort of going down the freeway that that definitely wasn't an issue vibration it was fine the mirrors were stable and comfort wise the seat was was good for me it was a nice mix of softness and and security and as i say not too narrow sometimes those types of bikes can have sort of a bony seat but it was it was fine right um the brakes were good i mean it's got a it's got a front uh, disc brake on it rear drum did you uh, have any kind of objections with the brakes did they have good feel was there some power there they did yes they did the brakes were good when i was on the street you know i had cause to pull up sharpish when things happen as they do um that's mainly that's well only front brake for me and that was perfectly adequate i didn't have any problem stopping didn't experience anything untoward and on the rough stuff as um sort of directed by the various people who've had input into my dirt bike life (laughs) i used the back brake um and that was fine as well. It certainly worked. It sounds great. I mean, there's not a lot more to, to say about it. It sounds like just a really nice motorcycle. 
um, for an extraordinarily inexpensive price. And, you know, that that was your sort of overall impression by the sound of it? Definitely, yes. It's so inexpensive. I mean, I'm not saying I've got $3,000 lying around, but it's under $3,000. But if you're going to get something and you want it to cover most of what you're doing and for swapping, maybe you've got several people in the family who ride, you just want to have a motorcycle around, this is ideal. Um, especially if you live somewhere where you've got a bit of dirt bike riding, like near or on a ranch where you've got a big back garden yard. Yeah, I highly recommend this bike. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much. Our snippet this week comes to you from Alpine Stars. The iconic Italian apparel manufacturer has an impressively large range of product, and as great as that is, it also may make it difficult to pick out exactly what you might want. Recently, I wore some A-Stars street bike gear that impressed me, and TJ sampled some of the Alpine Stars off-road range of items that she liked. So we're gonna talk about Alpine Stars gear. Yes, we are. We've both had a couple of riding situations recently. I was on the street and you were on the... I was on a dual sport. On a dual sport ride. My whole outfit was actually Alpine Stars, so I want to talk about a few little things here. I'll start with the boots because they were just amazing. Excellent. Um, these are the Stella Tech 3 boots for ladies. Um, and they are designed for ladies fit. So they've got a great flexibility feeling about them. Even though they're really solid boots... Um, they are they have a sort of pivot at the ankle so you can bend and move around sort of normally some off-road boots trails boots and things can look like ski boots or feel like i don't know just big and cumbersome but these are actually really nice nice feeling and also they looked cute i saw photographs of them or me wearing them and they, they did yes, look really they attractive did. <laughs> they did look really attractive i thought they had a little, uh, I, I fell off a couple of times, and they have sort of a gate around the top that stops any dust and grit getting inside. They were nicely padded, very comfortable. You have a choice of two colourways of these. I chose the black and white, and they're $249.95. Uh, once you've got them, you've got them for life. I mean, you're not going to damage these babies, and I, I'd say I fell off and they were, I didn't get bruised or bashed. Now, I noticed they had a sort of almost ski-type buckle system on it. Was that pretty easy to operate? Very, yes. Um, and they, the middle one is reversed. You've got a top, a middle, and then a bottom. So you get a different feel. And they pull in tight. You can adjust them, but they, they pull in tight and keep a really snug fit. So it doesn't matter how sort of wide your ankles or calves are, you can adjust these babies. So essentially a nice pair of off-road boots and you don't walk around like Herman Monster you know when you're off the bike yes yeah no they're really cute looking they've got sort of the white along the bottom of the sole and, and i think that added to that little sort of penguin effect <laughs> <laughs> okay cool well i'd like to tell you about the gp plus r v3 ride knit leather jacket that i was wearing <laughs> and <laughs> despite the ridiculous mouthful of a name um the jacket is really cool I like it because it's it has a lot of leather construction, so it makes me feel protected, and, and it is protective without a doubt. But it has all up the inside of the arms, through the armpits, and, and, and down, and also around the neck, it is a knitted fabric um, that is mesh, for want of a better word. So it's sort of Alpine Star's way of saying mesh. And so it's you get the coolness, almost not quite of a full mesh jacket, but pretty close. It, it's all it's mesh in all the right places to keep it really well cooled 
unlike a, just a normal you know, vented jacket, I've got several of those vented jackets. This is way cooler than that. So it is definitely a warm to hot weather jacket. But at the same time, it's got enough leather over it that I feel really well protected. Whereas in a mesh jacket, to be honest with you, fully mesh, you can feel a bit naked, you know. So it seems like a really good compromise jacket. The thing that, when we're talking about looks, the thing that's really cool is the knitted fabric is quite sort of open mesh, if you like. So the colorway underneath, and I went for the black with the fluorescent yellow uh, highlights on it, and that fluorescent yellow shows through all of the mesh, through the ride knit fabric, and it looks really cool. And I have to say, as much gear as I wear in, in public, I don't often get people commenting about, wow, that's a nice jacket. With this one, I've had lots of comments. Um, several of our friends have, I suspect, will be wearing a ride knit jacket at some point soon. Because I've had lots of people say to me in public, wow, that's a cool jacket, that looks really good. So, although I'm not the best male model out there, it, it actually it looks pretty good on me. <laughs> um, if I have a complaint, the only complaint I have is about lots of jackets, and that is that when you zipper up the cuffs, there is a Velcro tab that, that goes over it, but it's non-adjustable. There is no adjustment in the cuffs. And I have relatively, maybe I have thin wrists, I don't know, but I, I, I feel like I want to tighten up these these jacket cuffs or on certain jackets and this is one of them uh, you do have slender wrists actually but it's a valid point if that's something that you like to have as adjustable some jackets do have it so. i would like to have have a more adjustable wrists but really that's a very minor point the jacket is slim fitting um, it has plenty of body armor around of course across the shoulders and the elbows so it's a really safe feeling jacket that has enough mesh in it to keep you really cool Honestly, I mean, other than the slight niggle with the adjustable wrists, um, at six twenty nine, it is uh, not a cheap jacket. So, I mean, other than five cents, it's six hundred and thirty dollars. Um, so, it's not a cheap jacket, but it does not feel like a cheap jacket. Um, it's long at the back as well, which I like. So, if you're in a relatively sporting riding position, it doesn't you don't get the big old gap at the back. Mm. Um, so it, it, it's a good length. It's a nice fitting, excellent jacket. I know what you mean. Yes, I know what you mean. Uh, back to the wrists. I think it also depends on if you're wearing gloves that are gauntlet gloves or short gloves. That, that can make a difference. It certainly does. We've been through enough insects lately. In fact, <laughs> you might remember uh, about a week ago, the bees. we rode through a swarm of bees. And I don't like having open wrists where, because I've had it, where a bee can go, a stinging insect can get sucked in up your jacket arm <laughs> and flip and sting you. So <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean. I'm with you there. I always have my jacket done right up to the top and my wrists. <laughs> right. Tight. I like to have my wrists where things can't get inside. So I have gauntlet gloves that, that go over the wrists. Yeah, in this you case. should have put those on or grow your wrists. Yeah. Um, and I have to say that I've seen that jacket from behind because you've been wearing it to ride. And it looks really cool. You've got the fluoro sections are in a nice shape. Well, not exactly like eyes, but they're sort of nicely balanced across like your shoulder blades. It's, oh, uh, cool. Highlights your shoulder blades. I think it looks good from behind. I could spot you when we were riding in the crowd quite easily. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. So I think as a, as a jacket, very impressed. Okay, we're talking about tops <laughs> on my ride <laughs> on the Jewel Sport. I wore the um, Stella 
This is Alpine Stars Stella Fluid Jersey. All their girls' stuff, they have a range called Stella. And that's thirty-six ninety-five. And you might think, well, I'll just wear a T-shirt. But to be honest, this is well worth wearing because it's got the long sleeves. It's wick-away fabric. It's long down the back, so when you tip off, which you inevitably do, otherwise you're not trying hard enough, apparently, it doesn't ride up. It's nice and long. It's flattering. It's shaped for women. So I was really pleased that I'd... Uh, I'd uh, decided to actually wear a proper sort of uh, jersey for for the job. All right, let's uh, move on to the pants. Um, I was riding on the street. Um, I always like to wear jeans, but I've realised that jeans are not good. Obviously, they're not protective and they don't feel very um, comfortable. So you need sort of riding pants, even if they are protective denim riding pants. And I was riding with the Sector, that's S-E-K, T-O-R, Sector Regular Fit Denim Pants at uh, 190 bucks, 189.95. And they're really good. They fit well. They're a slim fit. Um, I've got fairly skinny legs, so they, they work well. And what I'm happy to say is the body armor doesn't ride up onto my thighs when my knees are bent on a sport bike. So all in all, as far as uh, riding jeans go, they're great. Right, pants. These are the bee's knees. Again, Stella. These are Alpine Stars Stella Fluid Pants. These are $109.95. Um, and they are excellent for the job. So they're already pre-shaped, so you don't struggle around with, with that. You can put your knee protectors in underneath the knees and they're already in position. They have quite a low waist, so that's comfortable, keeps you cool. And it's an adjustable waist. There's sort of a ratchet feature that means you can get it really close if you want it tight um, it does have stretch fabric panels so you don't feel uncomfortable and importantly it's got a mesh lining so I didn't feel like I had to wear little sometimes I wear little sort of leggings underneath jeans and things but these they they were great um, so I was so pleased that I'd got those and I'm going to move on to gloves because I also had part of the Stella range the full ball gloves and these are really nice little fitted stretchy gloves they just come up to the wrist they have got velcro so you can get them nice and tight they've got bump features all over them so if you bang your fingers and uh, i i did <laughs> they were fine and really good feel because they're so stretchy you you can just move around all your controls easily and those are 29.95 excellent the last thing i want to mention is the is the boots i was wearing and these are the faster three ride knit shoes for $199.95, in other words, 200 bucks. And they're great. I have no complaints about them. They've got ankle protection. They do have the uh, ride knit fabric as part of their construction, so they, they are relatively cool. Um, and they, they break in easily. So uh, I didn't have to get, you know, I have sensitive feet from various damaging accidents over the years. And these broke in really nicely and they feel comfortable. So uh, I'm pretty happy with them. They just have ordinary lace-ups and then just a closure at the top. So all in all, if you're wearing sort of urban type of, uh, you know, riding boots, they're great. Yeah, they do look good. They look sort of definitely past the streetwear. I mean, they've got, yeah, you know, a bike look, but definitely those in the jeans, I think, look really nice. Yeah, thank you. So all in all, uh, Alpine Stars gear is definitely up there among the best. Certainly um, everybody has their opinion, but... I would say that Alpine Stars, you know, treat you pretty well as a rider. Yes, yeah, I think so. Especially for ladies, you know, they've got a good selection there. I love the Stiller range. Excellent. 
In our second segment, TJ Adams chats with Summer Hooker. He's an expert in the world of vintage motorcycles and the chief judge at the Quail Motorcycle Gathering, as well as many others, including the Salon Privé at Blenheim Palace in the UK. He is the author of many articles which have been published in classic motorcycle magazines, and he has worked in residential therapeutic programs for children and youth, as well as helped establish the first residential program for autistic children in Tennessee. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. The Yamaha name stands for a heritage of motorcycle performance and classic styling. Visit your dealer to find the 2023 Yamaha Sport Heritage bike for you. Like the XSR 900, where timeless design meets the sheer power of a CP3 power plant. Or the XSR 700, built to be customized with modern classic looks and cross-plane concept twin performance. For all things Yamaha Sport Heritage, visit yamahamotorsports.com or see for yourself at your local dealer today. It's lovely to speak with you, and I'm really interested to know how you go about judging vintage motorcycles, because they all look so wonderful to Joe Average like myself, having a, having a look at all these, these gorgeous vehicles. How do you start? Well, you have to understand that there's a bunch of different ways to judge them. There are different standards, you might say, and it depends on which standard you want to adhere to. In some ways, it's a beauty contest. You know, Miss America, they have different skills you have to do. Your real objective judging standards are dealt with by long objective checklist where you check each item off. And how does that compare to what the original manufacturer did? Right. So you're looking at vehicles to be concourse here. This is your speciality. In a way, you know, you have organizations that get very technical, both in cars and motorcycles, like the Antique Motorcycle Club of America, where they're judging originality, or the Antique Automobile Club of America, they're judging originality. Now, there's another extreme, which is where the concours term really came into, and it's called French judging. That's just the beauty contest. That's where you just go, wow, that's really pretty. But, you know, it may have never come in that color. They never may have never used chrome wheels on it or something like that. So those are your extremes. Now, what we do with the quail is kind of a combination of the both and the motorcycle judging. It's not a strict checklist, but it's a loose checklist. But it still leaves uh, a lot of room for just eye appeal, so to speak, and all. Because when I was brought on board, I had a discussion with Gordon McCall. I said, well, you know, what approach do you want to have? He said, well, let's kind of keep it fun where it's not extremely technical. So let's do this. So I designed kind of a loose structure where in some ways still the most original bike rises to the top. But. It doesn't have to have, you know, cadmium plated spokes from 1927 in there and stuff like that. No. So anyway, that's kind of what we do there. Yeah, because the Quail Motorcycle Gathering is really for machines that are working and usable the way I see it. We hope that they are. They don't always. What's the problem with motorcycles is you, you can push them across the stage with the Motorsports Gathering in the August. 
it's hard to push a car across the stage, <laughs> especially, you know, we do get people come up with excuses like, oh, I didn't know I had to run or my battery went dead or something like that. But, you know, we, we go ahead and let them through. But I always tell people, you know, part of the show is kind of the oral presentation of hearing them run and so forth. So people get a big kick out of that because, you know, sometimes the, the sound attracts you more than vision does of it. And you are so well renowned and so well thought of. Are you not swayed by your own personal opinion, your preferences? When you look at a motorcycle, don't you sort of air towards what you like yourself when you're sort of doing that? Not concourse judging, the sort of uh, pretty boy judging. Yeah, well, actually, like at the quail, I don't really do any judging. I'm actually in a back room. <laughs> I thought you were the chief judge. <laughs> Go for it. But I've learned a long time ago to, you know, you got to be objective. You know, there, there are things that I like. And if it was in a uh, custom class, you know, nice. But uh, you just got to be objective. And I've learned to do that over the years. Because you, you would be naturally drawn to Vincent's. I gather you're a Vincent man. I am. I'm actually, as I tell people, there's not many motorcycles I'm not attracted to. I mean, I have a bunch of early Japanese motorcycles. I have Ducatis. I have a lot of old BMWs. They're all interesting to me. And you must have seen thousands. I mean, you've, you've been in the industry for years and this is what you do so i have you know and it's uh it's interesting and sometimes you look back and you say i didn't realize what i was looking at back then you know and uh i've been around a lot of events and auctions and so forth i mean you can go to an auction sometimes see almost two thousand motorcycles wow yeah that's uh that's a huge amount to, to look at in one hit i tell people you know auctions are kind of like big shows but the problem is just is you can buy them. Yeah, yeah, and that is a problem because it's tempting. I know, so forth. Just don't wave. Yeah. <laughs> Hands by your side. And do you um, have a lot of motorcycles yourself that you own? Oh, I still have some. Uh, I, I have uh, a few Vincents and some old BMWs and some early Ducatis and uh, some early Hondas. But I've been, you know, thinning the herd, as they say. I still enjoy riding. I still have a couple of uh, modern motorcycles, too. And uh, I, I guess enjoy touring on them. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking with um, Paul Dooley and the Vintage End, and he was saying that part of the thing is owning a lot of motorcycles. It's the upkeep. It's keeping them running, keeping the whole show going, tending them. You know, I've helped some people with large collections, and I tell people, you know, buy a lot of battery tenders. You know, because you're going to have to keep the batteries up and, the, you know, you have to remember you can't leave gas in there because gas these days turns stale and, um, you know, keep air in the tires and stuff like that. You know, it's like having a bunch of children. <laughs> and then get your friends to come around and give them a, give them a run. <laughs> well, you know, I had a client one time and he had close to 100 motorcycles. And he also had, at that point in time, 60 cars. So he told his employees who, you know, he had a staff that maintained them, he said, take a different vehicle to launch every day. And uh, so that worked out good because they're all ready to go. That's a great idea and a, a real bonus for them. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a win-win situation for sure. And is there any motorcycle that you want to see that you haven't actually seen in the flesh yet? Not that I can think of, but, you know, 
I might remember it in the middle of the night, but I've been fortunate over the years, having gone to a bunch of shows, auctions, and just being around collections, and seeing some pretty interesting stuff. So it's, uh, I'm sure there's something I would like to see. I just can't, couldn't come to my mind. I'm, yeah, that's probably a bit of a wide open question. I mean, I keep hearing about motorcycles <laughs> that are new to me that I've never heard of before, especially from early years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was, a, you know, the United States before World War One, there were 200 motorcycle manufacturers. Now, the issue with that was they, they were what we now call a boutique outfit. You know, they may have just been located in Ohio and only sold within 300-mile range, so forth. And then there were some, you know, large manufacturers like uh, – Oh, Harley Davidson, who went for an international market and Indian and so forth. But there were others who just, you know, they were just basically local people and um, so forth. I mean, I remember seeing one one time. It's called the Detroit. Well, obviously, it was made in Detroit, and there were only three that had ever been seen. And Two of them are in really bad shape. And, you know, this one was kind of survivor, but people were able to take, uh, oh, get some brochures, you know, replicate the gas tank and stuff like that and create a pretty good idea. As good of an idea as you could from a black and white drawing on a brochure. And if you're around motorcycles a lot, you know, I, I tell people, don't put too much credence in brochures because, those brochures were created to make it attractive to you. It's not necessarily the way they looked. It's kind of a hypothetical view. And, all. <laughs> and then there's the ease of running and the ease of riding, of course. I mean, there are people who, you know, still ride extremely old motorcycles. Well, there's an event that's held every other year called the Cannonball, where people ride like they changed the years. The first year was 1915 and earlier motorcycles cross-country and they'll do 300 miles a day and uh, it's just amazing to see what some people go through to participate you talk about true grit i mean the most interesting contestant i ever saw was a woman who came over from austria with this tiny motorcycle which had no clutch so every time she stopped she had to kill it and then it was in 1904 when she started it up again she'd have to run and bump start it. Of course, this was made for a time when there were no stoplights or anything like that. So that one is big of an issue, you know. But uh, she did this almost cross country. I think she finally had a fork break 2,000 miles into the journey and had to finally quit. But I was like, now that's spunk. <laughs> Incredible woman. Yeah, she was, you know. As you said, though, in general, they don't address the rideability. They may say it's very rideable, and all, and some are, but others are just, you know, totally uncomfortable. Sometimes you just look at them and say, that doesn't look like fun. And what's the oldest uh, motorcycle you've ridden yourself? Probably it was something from the 20s. I had one recently. I never rode it myself. It was a 1912, but we did get it running. And a friend of mine who did some work on it, he rode it around. He said it made him extremely nervous because it had a very flimsy brake, you might say. Like I said, they were designed for kinder, gentler times where you really weren't worried about stopping and uh, there weren't stoplights or anything like that. You know, your biggest obstacle then was horses 
but I was tempted to take it to a large parking lot where I could just, you know, do a large circle, so to speak. But then uh, opportunity came along where a guy wanted it more than I did. So I sold it to him. Nice. So he'll be keeping that going, keeping that alive. And how did you actually get into motorcycles to start with? Because you've got such extensive knowledge. Well, it goes back to I got one when I was in the Navy. And before then, my only riding experience had been when I was about 14, a friend of mine tried to teach me how to ride his BSA and I got on it and they said, let the clutch out slow. And I let it out real fast and it pulled the wheel stand. I went into the hedge. I said, I'm over this. And then when I was in college, my roommate had a triumph. So one day while he was gone, I started it up and kind of rode it up and down the road because I had a little better idea of how to behave, so to speak. And then when I went to the Navy, I acquired a matchless from my brother. And I thought, well, I'm going to be stationed in California. And I was going to be stationed in the Bay Area of California. I thought, I can just ride a motorcycle all year. And, uh, you know, I later learned that San Francisco is not necessarily warm any time of year. But, uh, you know, I kind of learned to ride out there and, uh, you know, just kind of kept riding. And when I was, I was a radar operator on a plane that would stay up for long periods. We were up for 12 hours. So you always had, you know, you had a lot of downtime where you're getting what you called on station. So I've always been an avid reader. So I was always carrying motorcycle magazines and books. So I learned a lot just sitting in the plane reading about them uh just because i wanted to know more and then it was a british motorcycle and british motorcycles are known to break down and make mechanics out of everybody you kind of start learning beside the road and uh so forth so it's kind of that way and then i got out and i bought another i bought an old bmw and rode that for a while and i learned we could tour on that. And so I rode around the Eastern seaboard on it. And then, you know, I bought a a Vincent and with it came some parts where you kind of learn, well, gee, I can sell some of these parts off and help exasperate the cost of the bike. And so pretty soon I was selling parts on the side too. And I did that for years. Now the whole time for a lot of years, I actually worked for the Department of Mental Health for Children and Youth Services and did that. And as I tell people back then, I was, you know, helping kids through adolescence. And then I started, you know, dealing more in motorcycles and I started saying, now I'm helping people recreate their adolescence and all. But uh, anyway, it just kind of kept growing. I got a reputation and made some good contacts and some good clients. And it's, it's it's been an interesting voyage, you might say. I mean, I've met some pretty interesting people and been to some interesting places and done some things I never thought I would do. Like one time, I guess all of a sudden uh, got contacted and went down to Argentina and went down and bought a shop out down there and packed it all in a container and shipped it back here. And that was an adventure on numerous levels. But anyway, makes you learn to think real quick. <laughs> Yeah, problem solving. That would have been a, a very exciting event. Uh, it's, it's definitely problem solving. And I had to do it in Spanish too. <laughs> Goodness me. And so have you recorded any of your knowledge? You've obviously built up a lot of things you've learned from places, but you've obviously built up a lot of knowledge yourself. Have you written anything down? or? Not, not really. At one time I kind of thought about it, but uh, I write for some other 
people and you know it gets to be work after a while and uh so forth i mean i'm i'm pretty free with knowledge because my background is education so um you know it's the old thing gladly what i teach gladly what i learn and so forth so if people ask me questions i do a lot of consulting with people and so forth but uh you know i've not documented some of the adventures i've had and uh which you know is it's food for thought because I have met some pretty colorful people who uh, you would never guess that they had extensive collections and all. And some of them were extremely eccentric. And, uh, but that's what, you know, makes the whole trade uh, interesting. The types of people involved in motorcycles, it just never ceases to amaze me. Me too. <laughs> Who's the most flamboyant person, do you think, <laughs> if you had to say? That can really vary. I mean, I've had, uh, I had one guy who he had a whole semi trailer filled with Vincent's and he lived in a 300 year old house that still had, he had a barn and the side of the barn were still musket balls from the revolutionary war. This is up in Massachusetts and he was, you know, pretty eccentric. I mean, he would go down and buy a can of beans a day. He had no running water except for uh, a faucet outside. And that was the source of his water. And he had a hot plate that he would heat the beans up on. Yet he had all these expensive motorcycles crammed in there. But he was, he was waiting. You know, he would only, you know, he was cunning too. And he finally sold them for a fair amount of money to a guy but you know to try and buy from him would just wear you out he was just uh pretty eccentric and pretty cunning and all and uh same thing he had a property that was extremely valuable and uh he did the same thing he finally sold it to the the city there because it's very historical by playing them off against the developer. Of course, he's playing the developer off against them and got a bidding war going and all. And he, you know, but to look at him, he drove an old beat up Volvo war against thrift shop clothes. And, uh, you know, I remember going for a ride with him in this Volvo to save money when he was going downhill, he was put it in neutral at a coast, you know, and stuff like that. And then, there was another collection I got access to one time, and this guy had, uh, he had about 200 motorcycles. Unfortunately, he also had some pretty bad legal problems, and they later, but he, had, you know, the whole motorcycle business was incorporated and sound, so to speak. So when he got in legal trouble, they couldn't really say this had anything to do with it, and he had to go away. So the corporation had to sell off everything and that's one thing i'm sorry i don't have any pictures of when he had this you know warehouse just packed with 200 motorcycles some of which were extremely valuable he had about 25 vincents in there and uh oh you know his his biggest issue had just been spending cash which problem everybody should have i'm sure but uh anyway that was one of the more interesting ones i've been into and so forth and there's some other people who just are you know they have very eclectic collections and uh so forth so still some pretty big collections out there i mean it amazes me 
where all of a sudden they get exposed, you know, somebody will die and uh, all of a sudden hear all these units there. So it was like the first big auction I ever went to was uh, in Pennsylvania. And this guy, he had been a hoarder and there had actually been a few magazine articles written about him, but he had his old cement plant and he stuck everything in there. And then he had a silo where he stuck bikes in there and then he had put planks across the top of it so he could walk across the top of it. And there's a picture made of him back in the seventies. He's standing on top of this plank. But uh, I remember reading about the auction and going up there and I had to go up to new England anyway. And this was in Pennsylvania. They had dragged everything outside and there were just rows and rows of motorcycles outside. And a lot of them were new and they had uh, one side you would say was rusted. And it turned out because that was the side that it exposed to weather when the windows got broken out in the cement plant. And so they got rained on. And he lived, I mean, this guy said, oh, yeah, he would show up the races, but he was too cheap to get a motel room. He would sleep in his car. And then he lived in this little travel trailer, and he kept a list. He he had so much stuff there he started farming stuff out to other people can i store these bikes here and so forth so he did that and then he kept a list in his coat pocket of where everything was unfortunately he lived in a little trailer which was heated with a gas heater the gas heater caught on fire one night he died perished in the fire and the list of where all the bikes were perished so they know there are probably a lot more bikes that people just kind of forgot to raise their hand and say, I have them here and uh, so forth. But they had, oh, just hundreds at this one sale. And I mean, I, I'd never seen anything like it. Just, you know, rows and rows of these bikes outside. And that's when I kind of learned about my first exposure to hoarders, so to speak. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? A certain type of person who has enough value to be able to live comfortably, but lives so frugally that they're uncomfortable and yet don't really care for these things preciously, but but have this urge to keep them. I don't understand hoarding, but it is a... No, I, I, I tell tell people when you see how bad a condition they're in from the poor storage they have, I said, oh yeah, they just loved them to death, didn't they? You know? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good expression. Yeah, and so forth. And I mean, I've been into collections over the years recently, and I guess get to the point where, you know, I used to go back and kind of stay in contact with them, see if they were wanting to do anything. And, you know, I was always being rebuffed, but now it's just tenacious also. And now I guess gotten to the point where I just, I don't have the time for them. You know, they're, they're going to die with that, I guess, you know, I'll just look for the obituaries, you know, and just leave it at that and uh, so forth. And I have people who I say, you know, you're really going to kind of screw your family over if you don't have some sort of plan for this stuff and uh, so forth. And, you know, I've had a guy new here. He never even bothered to title anything in his name because he didn't want to spend the money on taxes. So he had nine motorcycles and one license plate, which he gets around and all and then he was killed suddenly in an accident 
his wife had this mess to unravel there. And uh, there's a lot of people like that. They just buy them and store them. They, you know, just like to look at them until they got something else parked in front of it. Yeah, how frustrating. Frustrating for you if you see something also that you want to nurture and care for, but you have to kind of turn a blind eye because there's no chance of getting hold of it. Yeah, and you can see stuff that, you know, is somebody could have enjoyed and it's deteriorating there. No, I mean, I've seen some other stuff. I mean, I I know I have one client. He probably has over 800 motorcycles, but they're all cared for too. He likes them. He can afford them. As I tell people, that's that's always nice work if you can get it, you know. uh, But he has a specifically built building for them. And they're all in there. They're organized and stuff. And he has caretakers in there and so forth. So they're what you call well curated. And not many people get in to see it, but I'm, I work with a guy who is his main buyer, you might say. And they actually had to do, you take a, get a drone in there to fly around inside the warehouse to photograph everything. And he said, here, I'm going to show you the video. Or she says, I'll have to kill you if you ever tell anybody about it. And, um, but it was, I was just, you know, kind of gobsmacked looking at the video. It's like, can you zoom in on that? You know, because I knew he had a lot of stuff, but, you know, that was, it was kind of like going to Mecca, you might say. Gosh, that's astounding. Great idea to use the drone as well. And that's why um, I like shows like the Quail Motorcycle Gathering is an opportunity for people to see a variety of different older, I mean, it covers all ranges of motorcycles and, to actually see them physically yeah yeah well it is and you know you can walk around them and you know we we try and attract a real variety there it's not just for correct vintage motorcycles but you know one of our most popular classes is what's called custom modified and that's just bikes that guys build as their own specials and so forth and you know i kind of you know point out to people this is where your future's coming from these are the guys, the younger people, and they'd like to work on them and build them. It's not some old guy just goes to an auction and buys something that's turnkey, so to speak. These are the people who have some sweat equity, you might say, in it, and, uh, and they're creative. And even last year, we kind of, I guess you would say, rattled some teacups because the best in show was a custom modified bike. But the guy, you know, everybody agreed this is one of the most creative things we've ever seen, you know. You know, you got to salute creativity at the same time. Like I said, we're not really defined as just a, oh, nothing but, you know, vintage correct show. It's a variety show, you might say. And we have racers and there's, you know, the joke is there's no such thing as a uh, correct racer because people who race them, they change them about the first day they get them and start modifying them to go faster and all. But uh, we have a lot of, you know, race bikes of the period there and stuff like that. But we do have classes like, uh, you know, British, Italian, or we have European. And this year we have, uh, you know, Gordon McCall came up with a class called Italian and Single. We've had a bunch of single-cylinder Italian motorcycles, very popular in the 50s and 60s and the early 70s before bigger came in and we've had a very good response to that class this year and so forth so it's we kind of you know keep changing things around to keep a featured class and keep people interested and uh you know it's 
still is the largest motorcycle show. I guess you say vintage flavored motorcycle show in the United States. Yeah, it's well worth traveling for. Definitely. It's a fabulous event. And um, you can actually see the people and chat with the people as well. You, you know, you see the owners, you see famous people, you see the racers. Everybody's there mingling. Yeah, it's all there. And, you know, just everybody's, it's, it's low key, which is, you know, people like, you know, and uh, so forth. And uh, so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a good model. It works. Yeah, it's interesting what you were saying about the people who customize their bikes. It's a, it's an art, and it's also a, a really nice way of people to express their own personalities. And you see the bike, and you see the owners, and you, you get the type. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's becoming oh, I guess in some ways, you might say a little polluted because some people are buying customized bikes just to enter them, which is, it's good for the people who build them because they, you know. Obviously, they're not getting making money by just building stuff. But, you know, what I like to see is a little guy who restores his own bike or builds his own custom bike in his own shop. And but you know, part of the deal is is there are always going to be people who are just paying other people to do it. I mean, I pay other people to do uh, paint work or engine work and so forth because you know you got to know your own limitations too. And but you know there's some people who are extremely creative and do it all yeah it's a, a talent and they're not frightened to try things as well people who actually manufacture their own parts etc <laughs> it's interesting as you see it's creative and all that's you know that's something you see a lot in other countries that was one thing and uh i really appreciated when i was in argentina to see in 1950 they can no longer import parts or motorcycles or vehicles so they had to learn to do it themselves. And so you would see some people who got extremely creative in keeping stuff alive and uh, so forth. Whereas here, you're just used to, you know, calling a toll-free number. And it's in, you know, FedEx to you the next day. Down there, that was not an option. You know, sometimes they had to just sit there and weld it up and file it and machine it themselves to keep it on the road. This craftsmanship you still see also in Europe. I know I, I know people who are in the car restoration business, and they can't find anybody that's really interested in doing what's called panel beating. Nobody wants to do body work anymore. One person I know, he said, I have to put them in a container and ship them to Italy where there are people there who still know how to do it. He said, nobody in the States, it's not even being taught anymore. And nobody in the States is really interested in it. You know? So he said, it's, it's a disappearing art. I mean, luckily, you have a place, places like McPherson College, which is teaching all these skills to people. And um, But in general, it's, it's came to be a lost art. Yeah, it's a shame. Where is McPherson College? It's in the Midwest. I think it's in Kansas. They have a regular curriculum of focused on, you know, things like, oh, engine building, body building, electrical systems and stuff like that. And their graduates are, you know, they're pretty much in demand because, you know, they, I mean, I know this one client I have who, you know, his first mechanic that he kept on board was a McPherson graduate. And he was always sending him overseas to learn more about how to, tune Ferraris and stuff like that. And, uh, cause 
he had older cars and you know you go to any dealership these days if they can't plug into a computer they don't know what they're talking about you know and uh so forth but they get kind of they teach kind of the lost art to things there it's it's very interesting university and you know I'm, i'm glad to see something like that out there you know i mean you know when i was growing up we had shop class and uh what you know i enjoyed but that's been dropped you know a lot of skills like that home ex no longer taught and stuff like that so you kind of think well we're not gonna need this in the future we'll have uh you know nothing's gonna break or something like that but that's not necessarily the story yeah it's interesting isn't it i mean at the risk of sounding like an old giffer um i just feel they need to teach more uh, life skills at school <laughs> Yeah, no, they need to do more hands-on type stuff and all. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole nother new subject. <laughs> I mean, something else that interests me or I wonder about often, concourse, correct me if I'm wrong, is as per manufactured and rolled off the line. That's what you're looking for when you're judging concourse. Basically, yeah. All right. So when you're, you're looking at vehicles and you're trying to make a judgment on, it must be so difficult to choose a best of show, et cetera. If, if you've got so many vehicles that are perfect, you literally get down there with like with a Q-tip and test for dirt. Oh, no, no, I, I never want to take off or penalize anybody because they use something, you know, I tell people, hey, these should be enjoyed, you know, shame on you if you don't enjoy it. But you know, when we're picking, you know, like the best of class, it's, you know, we have a system where actually you get started going through and you get points for various categories in there. Your points just add up and tell you. And then from the best of show, what I do is I get all the, I have what I call the team leaders of each class. And they're kind of like a mini head judge and they coordinate all the, you know, scoring for that class. And then the team leaders will get together. And the beauty now is having iPhones. I say, they can sit up there and they hold up the picture of the best in their class. And then we go through and discuss which one of these should be the best of show. And the best of show has to also be something that was, uh, you know, judged in the class. You know, it can't be something that was just parked there for, you know, viewing only so to speak it has to be in the competition and all and but that's the way we've you know done that is just uh, a range and it you know makes for some entering discussions and some pretty close votes sometimes and all i bet i mean it's good to hear that so much is put into it it's it's taken seriously of course but i mean it's really quite a technical judging process that's good to hear i get judges i look for people who are experienced with that kind of motorcycle and what I do is when people apply, I just say, what is your first choice for class to be judged? And what is your second choice? Because sometimes you have to move people around because sometimes, you know, you just, you've got a lot in one class, you don't have enough judges. And so somebody gets their second choice and all, or, you know, sometimes you just get somebody who, you know, is good and they put them in some place they don't want to be. It's like, they still people, yeah, when well, I was in the Navy, I, I put it, I want to be stationed in Rota, Spain. Of course, I wound up in Vietnam, but, you know, that's the Navy for you, you know. And, 
so forth. So you don't always get what you want. But anyway, uh, generally I try and do that because I want people to be comfortable and knowledgeable of what they're doing. Because if you have knowledgeable people and they're dealing with them, then you're, you know, you're kind of being respectful to the people who gone out of the way to bring a vehicle up there and enter it and pay the entry fee and so forth. You want to give them their, you know, 15 minutes of fame, so to speak. Yeah, it's a big effort to put put a bike into show. And, you know, people want to know that they are, they're not just being played sort of thing. I mean, I don't know if you, it might, it's quite an emotional thing, I guess. So I, I don't know if you have people ever come and complain, you know, he shouldn't have won, I should have won because it's very emotional. Yeah, no, you, you get, you know, you get a lot of, you know, I'm not going to say you get a lot, but you get some people who are, you know, upset afterwards you know and they're starting to compare their apples to the other guys oranges and stuff like that and you know i guess kind of have to i guess kind of stand behind my judges and say well that was their decision you know uh and kind of leave it at that and uh, thank you for your feedback and uh, so forth so you know Kind of like that. I mean, there's always going to be people who feel a little missed by the whole thing. So what's and, next for you? Oh, After the quail, but, where do you, you know, move on to? Life. you around the whole country? Oh, yeah, I do. After that, I go to the opposite side, to uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, to the Greenwich Conquerors. And then... That's it kind of for a while until the fall when things kick back up. And there are a lot of shows in the fall I do. There's one in Chattanooga called the Chattanooga Motor Car Festival where they kind of take over the downtown and have vehicles there. And it's nice because I don't it's only 120 miles from here. But uh, there's one in uh Rhode Island, the Audrain Concours, and they've started featuring motorcycles the last years. And then there's Hilton Head, South Carolina. There's the International Vincent Owners Club rally is here this year. And I got pulled in to help organize that too. So it's uh, it's filling my calendar up, as they say. Yeah, you sound very busy, very busy. Good to hear it because that means there's a lot of motorcycling going on, a lot of motorcycle shows. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad to see it. I mean, it used to be, you know, when I first started, you know, playing with them, say, there wasn't much to do. And so, you know, to me, if I ever heard about anything going on, I got really excited and ran down there to it and all. And, you know, consequently, I was going to these little tiny meets in Georgia back in the 80s just because I heard they're getting together. And that's how you make contacts. And some of those people I'm still in contact with. And all. I think it's been fascinating speaking with you. I'm sure that our listeners will uh, get a lot from from hearing hearing all your news. So um, enjoy the rest of your day. And I appreciate your time. Is there anything I enjoy about going to the doctor and then the DMV? <laughs> <laughs> Ta-da then. Bye. Bye, Summer. Take care.